At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome, everyone, to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Thank you so much for coming back, listening to another show. We have a great one for you here, and we're moving south, guys. We are going to Texas for this one. We have our longtime listener and uh, Habitat Chat group member, Chris Dishman, coming on. So Chris has been on, contributing a lot, and um, I got really piqued and interested in, in what he was doing. Uh, so we got him on here tonight. We talk about an 80-acre parcel down in Texas of Chris's and how the Habitat in Texas you know, it's similar to the Midwest, how it's different, some things that they go after and try to perform down there, some different grants and programs that Texas allows, like a wildlife or a habitat grant. Um, talk about hogs. We talk about predators, um, food plot locations. A lot of it's similar and a lot of it's different. So we're traveling south of Texas, and we have Christopher Dishman on the line here tonight. All right, guys, uh, before we get there, I want to just tell everybody, Thanks so much for everyone who is leaving us great reviews on Apple iTunes or Spotify, any of the other podcast networks. I am sending out free 5-inch Habitat podcast decals to anybody who leaves one. Uh, if you didn't get a decal yet, go over to Habitat Chat on the group there, and there's a post I put up to uh, help find people with great reviews because iTunes doesn't really let you get the real name of somebody. So it's been working great. So I'm going to send out uh, another decal to Jason Trout this week, so thanks for the review, sir, and everybody else for doing that. Now, you guys will notice HabitatPodcast.com is uh, changing a little bit. It's moving a lot faster. We got some brand new hosting uh, program or software that helps us move quick. We got a bunch of new blog posts up there. One of them is a quick reference herbicide guide. So, you know, if you're thinking about what you can do this weekend and you have a couple questions on herbicide, we have a quick guide on there that you can refer to if you're wondering, you know, what 2,4-D is good for, what glyphosate's good for, um, what clethodim's good for. All that's on there. We even have the amounts used per acre, the recommendations on what it kills. It's all up there at HabitatPodcast.com over in the Habitat Journal. So just wanted to 
tell you guys about that since there's a brand new post up there this week. We also have, thanks to our guest Chris on here tonight, some brand new Habitat podcast coffee mugs. We had Melissa at Backwoods Brand here in Michigan make them up for us. And uh, Chris wanted some coffee mugs, so Chris, we got them for you. They're up there at HabitatPodcast.com, and they're actually on sale at the moment because we bought a bunch of them. So check them out. White ceramic coffee mug. Love to have you guys repping the, the podcast while you're drinking the cup of joe every morning. So all that, HabitatPodcast.com. Our Amazon store is up there. Um, hats, T-shirts up there. Everything's there. All the podcast episodes in our land plan consulting services which uh, we've been booking quite a few of those, too. So if you want to know what we're doing, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and check us out over at the website. Now, I want to thank uh, Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction for this podcast. We're talking to Chad here in a minute. We're going to get a market update on what the real estate market looks like right now in Chad's opinion. So stay tuned for that. We're going to get to that, and then we'll get right to the show. I want to also thank HuntWise. Killer Food Plots, Morse Nursery, Habitat Hook, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, and Packer Max Call to Packers. Guys, spring food plot, tree planting, everything is right here. You know, check out our sponsors, our partners. They're in the show notes below. If you just look below this episode, scroll down. I got all the information you need right there, including discounts for listeners only. Check all that out and give our, give our partners support as they support us, and we really appreciate that. So let's get into it with Chad over at Realtree United Country, and then we'll get right into it with Chris Dishman down in Texas. All right, Chad, thanks for hopping on. I wanted to get a market update from you, you know, in the Realtree United Country team. Um, what's the market looking like in the real estate world these days? Yeah, well, you know, so far as of March, you know, it's still a, a seller's market, Um Prices are still uh, up there, you know, and, and causing some guys to to put their property on the market um, because there's there's plenty of buyers out there, you know, that are willing to spend some money. Um, we're having some hiccups uh, with some appraisers, um, and they're, they're not, uh, I guess, keeping up to speed maybe with some of the latest uh, sales trends. So we're struggling a little bit with some financing, um, a little bit, but we've got, you know, buyers that are that are definitely willing to spend spend money. So you know that's always a good thing. You know, unfortunately, it's the supply and demand. You know, like we've talked about before, we're just not enough land out there for all the guys that are interested in buying. Um, interest rates are creeping up just a hair. Uh, you know, since the first of the year and the and the change in our government, um, they've come up a bit. And so um, I, I don't know if I can can uh, attest any slowdown in the market to that at all, but uh, it, it seems like it's it's maybe slowing just a hair. The phone isn't ringing quite as much as it was in December and first part of January. But, I mean, things are definitely good and still a seller's market, so we encourage, you know, anybody thinking about it to give us a shout. Yeah, so anybody thinking about selling, you're saying, and, and you know, so you need listings pretty much at this time, or, or probably everybody seems to need some listings. Yeah, correct. Yep, the residential market's the same. Um, you know, they they need the, the listings as well. You know, it's recreational. 
farm land, vacant land sales agents, uh, land specialists, yes, we're, we're in the same boat. We've, I probably have 50 buyers right now actively looking. Um, yeah. And so, um, that's a challenge, you know, trying to, things come on the market and they're just gone so fast and it's getting to be a little bit cutthroat. And so it's a real struggle to stay on top of, you know, the, if it's not my listing, it's very hard uh, to find uh, stuff out there that's, uh, you know, um, right for some of my buyers. So that's the biggest challenge. So, yes, you know, good quality parcels um, priced appropriately will be gone and, you know, listed, sold, and closed within 30 days. Wow. So, yeah. But, um but, you know, we, we, we're we actively working as buyer's agents as well. You know, even if we don't have the listings, we're, we're out there searching for many different buyers, um, trying to find them, you know, some land and some even, you know, some off-market stuff. Uh, we're reaching out to a lot of landowners, uh, just, you know, asking them if they've ever thought about selling and, you know, we could put some numbers together for them if they were interested in, in it at all because it's, you know, we're really having to try to really dig deep and, and find parcels for all these buyers. Yeah, that's great. And if people want to to get a hold of you about possibly listing their property or to find their future recreational property, uh, how can they do that? Yeah, so a long website name, um, Lake States Realty and Auction.com, or just give me a call or text at 517 517- Eight one nine six three four four five one seven eight one nine six three four four, or you've probably got a tab on your uh, Facebook and web page and stuff like that too. Or you can search my name, Chad Thalen. Um, you'll find plenty of uh, plenty of stuff out there, uh, links <laughs> and stuff to get a hold of me. <laughs> Maybe yeah. both couldn't bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think uh, with us, you got podcast number thirty three, eighty seven, and one hundred eight so far. So. You guys want to hear more from Chad? Uh, you know, feel free to listen to him on the podcast. And if you're thinking about listing your property or or in the market, check out uh, Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. We appreciate you hopping on here, brother. Um, for everybody who doesn't know, we have our friend from Texas, Mr. Chris Dishman, on the line here. How you doing tonight, sir? Uh, good, Jared. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Thanks for hopping on. And Brian Hallbly, what you up to, man? Same old stuff, man. Just running crazy, trying to get everything squeezed in before the podcast. But you know how that goes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Days are long. You know, hours of sleep are short. That's all right. No doubt. We got to turn a burn to get the listeners this awesome information. And I, I was talking with Chris over the weekend, so... I already know this is going to be a good one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, Chris, why don't you tell us uh, where in Texas you're from and, you know, a little bit about your background, all that good stuff. Paint us a picture, as I like to say. Sure. So I I grew up in uh, Dallas, Texas, and uh, probably like uh, many of your listeners, uh, got into deer hunting uh, early on through my father, who uh, took me out, you know, starting at a young age to, uh, go hunt deer and, uh, did that, you know, every year 
uh, around the state, um, usually for whitetail. At uh, one time, we went for uh, for mule deer, and uh, became kind of ingrained in me as it does, you know, in many of us, uh, that joy of joy of hunting. And uh, I moved away for a while, did some different things, and uh, came back about 15 years ago. Uh, and my my cousin uh, had a property east of Dallas, uh, toward East Texas. And the co-owner that he owned it with uh, dropped out, and he was looking for somebody to, to buy into it. And uh, so I did and kind of saw the potential for, you know, making it uh, into a good deer property. Uh, it really didn't have much wildlife uh, or many white-tailed deer. But, uh, you know, being a hunter, that's something that I really wanted to do was try to, you know, turn it into a place where there, you know, there would be deer and, uh, and people could enjoy and go out and, Harvest, harvest some does or, you know, potentially find a buck. And, and that kind of led me down the, uh, the journey to understand habitat management and wildlife management. No, that's, that's awesome. So are you and your cousin like co-owners then or? Yep. Yep. We're co-owners. Awesome. And uh, we own it together and he's uh, fully supportive of everything that we, you know, we do out there to try to, you know, we're trying to return some of the areas to, uh, restore native native grasses, uh, native trees, uh, but as well as you know, improve uh, wildlife overall. Uh, so he is certainly on board with that. Oh, that's awesome! And and I guess when did you know throughout your since you own the property, maybe even before that, in your habitat and and growing up and hunting journey, that you could start? You know, like I need to do something. I'm not impressed with what I'm seeing. I need to make some changes. How do I do that? Like, where did how did that all trigger for you? So it, it really started after I bought that property. Um, that because uh, there weren't any deer on it, and I, you know, thought to myself, well, how can we, you know, try to attract wildlife or deer? Um, because interestingly, uh, when I was growing up hunting, um, I, I realized looking back on it now just how little I understood about deer behavior. Uh, about uh, deer needs for uh, food, cover, and water, uh, how deer um, interact with, you know, between themselves. And and I really did just didn't understand overall deer behavior and because uh, of the style of hunting we did largely. And when I got out to, when I, once I bought into this land, um, you know, I started, you know, reading books and listening to videos, as many of us do. And uh, I think it was, you know, Jim Bracker's book, his electronic book, that really uh, the light bulb went off, you know, for me um, with that book, um, that there's all these different things you can do to try to kind of manipulate and attract, you know, deer uh, to live on your property or to spend time on your property. Um, and that's really when I started learning more about, uh, habitat management, and it's interesting because looking back on all the different properties I hunted across the state, um, I can kind of now put together why some of them might, were more successful than others. You know, looking back on them and understanding, you know, what made them a good property or what didn't make them a good property. Why don't we get into that? Why don't we talk about? Well, first of all, it's funny you say that. My dad says that all the time. He listens to the show, and he's like, "Man." I spent how many years doing it this way until, you know, all you youngsters 
and technology and all this stuff comes along, I had no idea. It's like we used to walk through the bedding areas. We you know, we set up here and there, and it's like it's just amazing that you know unless you're you're you get into it or somebody teaches you, it's hard to really know that stuff, you know. But um, yeah, absolutely. I was just gonna say after we touch on that, let's move into maybe the different habitat types in Texas that you know that kind of yours is in versus others. I've never been down there, so I can't. Sure. <laughs> sure. So as you're probably aware, Texas is a big state. Uh, there are 12 different ecological regions in Texas. Uh, they range from uh, piney woods of East Texas, uh, coastal plains in Southeast Texas, uh, mountains in West and Southwest Texas, uh, the Southern Plains uh, up in the Panhandle, uh, and then of course South Texas, which is most popularly known for you know big buck hunting and uh, and Boone and Crockett hunting. And my property is just to the west of the Piney Woods, so um, it is dominated by largely by hardwood canopy, uh, eastern red cedar, uh, white oaks and red oaks, uh, and the region is known as the post-oak savanna. And so uh, prior to uh, the area being kind of civilized and, and farmed, uh, fire and floods uh, kept the cedars out, and it was primarily just post-oaks and native grasses. Uh, you can contrast that with like South Texas, which is what they call chaparral, which is, you know, a nation of brush that's often chest high, including brush like mesquite, um, that is super thick. You can't see, you know, five feet through it. Um, and the ranches down there, uh, and this is true in a lot of the state where the size of the ranches uh, can be, you know, they'll start at three or 400 acres and often get up to, uh, you know, one to 2,000 acres. Um, a lot of the, the deer leases that I hunted growing up um, kind of in West and Central Texas were anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 acres. In South Texas, I mean, three, four, 5,000 acre ranch is not unusual. Um, you also find a lot of high fencing on there. So they'll, the, the owner will high fence the entire ranch uh, to protect it and grow the deer herd. Um, and in all cases, uh, you know, bait is often used, so uh, corn, or they'll use protein feed um, to try to, uh, you know, build up the uh, uh, deer antlers or, you know, deer's physiology. Um, and you see that a lot, in, you know, in South Texas. Uh, but in West Texas, Central Texas, uh, again, a lot of, you know, baiting and corn. Uh, in the area I am in, uh, the parcels are generally smaller. Uh, Eastern Texas was one of the first areas kind of civilized. And so, and of course, the Metroplex is in uh, kind of Northeast Texas. And so there are a lot of towns, uh, fragmented parcels. Uh, you find a lot smaller parcels uh, and generally not as, as large as you do in, you know, Central and West, essentially more remote areas. Uh, and so my parcel kind of falls into that category. It's uh, 80 acres. Uh, so, you know, not nearly as big as, as some of those other parcels. And and generally the, the style of the hunting, at least the, that I did growing up, was, you know, hunting hunting over corn, uh, hunting from blinds, and the, the shot might be, you know, 150 yards, 100 yards away. Um, 
you can also see to your left and your right, you can see deer movement uh, on hills or in valleys. And so, you know, big viewing areas um, usually can see for quite a distance. Uh, of course, there are, you know, exceptions to that depending on, you know, the type of hunting that you're, you're interested in. Um, but out in, in East Texas, it's, uh, you know, a lot more hardwoods, a lot denser and smaller parcels. Yeah, I mean, based on your aerial that you sent over, um, I mean, it looks like you're in in Michigan or, you know, northern Ohio or, or kind of like that. Um, you know, lots of woods, uh, some pasture or field out to both sides. Um, we're going we're gonna to throw up a picture of Chris's property over in the Habitat chat um, before this podcast launches, so if anybody wants to get a get a picture while we talk about his property um he's offered uh, or agreed to do that so thanks for doing that and uh but your your property looks i mean i'm i'm not kidding looks a lot like michigan yeah i, t- I tell you um i think it it is much more closely related to michigan than probably uh any other than it is related to any other place in texas i mean uh it has really nothing in common in terms of the topography, has really not very little in common with other parts of Texas, um, and a lot more in common with probably Michigan and you know maybe Mississippi and uh, some parts of Tennessee. Um, as I mentioned, it's uh, a lot of hardwoods. Uh, eastern red cedar uh, dominates the area. Um, that is a native tree, but the lack of, of fire, um, it's really it's really exploded. Um, and then, of course, I mentioned the, the white oaks and the, and the red oaks um, that are out there. And so, and so yeah, it's, it's uh, about 80 acres of, you know, hardwood canopy. And uh, it's, that's certainly been, uh, been an interesting challenge trying to turn that into something useful for deer. Yeah. Um, I mean, at least you have some cover to, to start out with versus having to grow it yourself. But uh, at the same time, Cutting it all down and removing where you want it, and, and the cedars alone—that's uh, uh, a headache, no doubt. I was going to say that's really been the, uh, uh, you know, the primary um, habitat goal uh, in the last few years is, you know, bringing down as as many cedars as possible. Um, they choke out the oaks and and kill them. Uh, they kill each other. Um, they soak up all the water, all the sun. Uh, you know, nothing can get to the floor. And when they're mature, as they are in my property and that close together, uh, they lose all of their limbs uh, from about five feet down. And so when you look underneath them, uh, you know, it's a, it's an ecological desert. You know, you can see for hundreds of yards. So it provides really, you know, no cover standing at least for a deer. Yep. Chris, do you have any ag around you, or is, is the rest of the properties around you pretty much all wooded like yours? So on my on my north and west side, um, I have what I would consider kind of Texas ag. Um, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because, you know, listening to, um, you know, a lot of shows and reading, about, you know, the Midwest and, you know, ag often refers to, I say, corn or soybean, uh, you know, things are nutritious for deer. Um, the ag that surrounds me and, and, and is in a lot of parts of Texas is really cattle ranching. And so you'll find a lot of cattle ranchers, and they'll grow um, either a native or a non-native grass, usually a non-native grass. Um, like my neighbor has a coastal Bermuda, 
and they'll grow that and use it for hay. And so, you know, there really isn't any nutrition offered, uh, you know, around my place for deer and in a lot of parts of Texas, I think that's, that's the case. Um, you generally see more cattle ranching than you do, um, you know, growing any, any sort of crops. Sure. Yeah. And I don't know if our listeners have never been there. I've hunted as far west as Odessa and it's like a completely different world. Like you said, from South Texas with the low brush down there. Uh, I actually lived in San Antonio for a few years while I was in the air force and hunted quite a bit down there. So I can get a real good picture in my mind. I haven't spent as much time in East Texas where you're talking about. That's why I'm kind of having you paint the picture there. Yeah, you bet. And, uh, you know, if you go further East, uh, it really turns into swamp too. There's uh, a lot of wetlands and, you know, swampy areas along the Texas, Louisiana border. Um, and then even going kind of South down into, um, you know, East of Houston, um, you get into kind of, you know, swamp and those coastal plains and, uh, wetlands. So, you know, Texas really has, has it all in terms of, uh, topography and, uh, and the deer, deer all over the state. And so just kind of a matter of, you know, implementing those, those habitat management, you know, principles, but, you know, how you do it might differ from region to region. So your hardwoods, uh, you have a pretty good mix of um, any uh, hard mast or soft mast, or is it all like a monoculture? It's. I would say that on my property, probably 80% of the trees are either eastern red cedar or oak. Um, I don't think there's ever been TSI conducted on the property. At least it doesn't appear to be. Um, there's not... There's no particular area or stands that look like they might be a little younger than the other stands. They all seem to clearly be mature and at, you know, the, the latter stages of successional, uh, growth. And so, um, so there's, there's a lot of, a lot of hardwoods for sure. Do those oaks produce every year? Are they, uh, mainly reds or whites or what kind are you dealing with there? Um, I have mainly whites, uh, post oak and, and bur oak, and uh, they do produce pretty regularly. Um, there's no shortage of acorns on the property, and uh, and my neighbor also has you know a lot of oak, so you know acorns uh, are definitely a big part of the of the diet there. Um, although as as we know, they uh, you know deer only can eat acorns uh, so often. They you know want a diversity of nutrition um, so one of the things that we've you know tried to do which uh, you know we can we can get into it in a little bit but in terms of the the oaks is you know might have three or four oaks in a particular area uh, I'll try to you know kill all of them but one and then allow that one just to get really big and and hopefully produce even more oaks so that's something I'm look, looking forward to this spring okay so you planning on uh, just uh, flush cutting those right at the ground, or are you going to hinge them over, or how are you going to approach that? Well, um, we kind of had a two-stage um, effort this year, um, and we we got started pretty early. Uh, you know, the first was to try to create side cover because uh, security is uh, is critical uh, in my property, and 
and I can go into some detail in a, in a bit why that is. But, uh, you know, security and cover is, is really important, and there really wasn't any. Um, we made some bedding from cedars, and there are some native, there are some native grasses coming up in certain areas that are fairly tall. Um, but nothing that really can protect deer and, and make them feel safe. Uh, so the first thing we did is drop cedars, uh, try to drop them on the ground. Uh, we did both um, hinge cutting and flesh cutting, uh, depending on, on where where we were. Um, really, the biggest uh, the biggest uh, issue for us was simply getting the tree to fall on the ground. There are so many trees that uh, most of them get hung up and you know turn into widow makers. Sure. And so we just walk the property and try to identify, okay. You know, if we take that one and that one, then we can drop that big cedar, and that'll be, you know, great side cover. Um, so we did that across kind of the whole property, um, constantly getting down on our on our knees, you know, looking at it from a deer's vantage point, and really trying to break up those sight lines. Uh, you know, some areas they still are a little longer than I'd like, but you know, we just weren't able to really drop anything, um, you know, in those places. Um, and while we did that. Uh, for some of the smaller cedars, we would hinge them and create little bedding areas. Uh, we might create two or three and cross them over each other, create kind of a V, and then kind of cut out the middle of that V, uh, rake it out, and try to create a you know little bedding area. Um, and then of course, uh, some of the bigger ones we dropped, you know, it's, they're not great bedding areas, but you know it's better than than what they had, and, and at least for you know the first phase of of uh, of this effort, uh, hopefully it'll, it'll give them something. And then the second part is uh, we we went and did hack and squirt and girl and squirt uh, on a lot of feeders, uh, tons of feeders, um, as well as I mentioned, uh, and that's what we did to the oaks as well, because oaks are they're all pretty large and some of these feeders are pretty large. Um, and that was the advantage to that was. Well, there's a lot of advantages. One is just efficiency. You know, we could really move through an area quick. Um, we found the cedars really easy to cut into because they had, you know, pretty soft, you know, to get into with a, with an axe. So we could move through a lot of acres quickly. Um, also, as I mentioned, a lot of these trees just simply won't hit the ground. They won't fall. And so that gave us that option, too, to be able to, you know, find a way to kill them. Um, and so the overall goal is, uh, as it is, you know, for a lot of people to do this is trying to get more, you know, sunlight to the ground, sure. uh, get the native forbs, native grasses to grow, try to try to get some cover and uh, food for the deer. Now, you mentioned security being very important. Is that due to the open type woods that you have that you're concerned about, or is there other outside factors involved in that? Uh, some outside factors. Uh, so uh, first are hogs. Um, there's feral hogs that run rampant um, all over the property. Uh, also have trespassers. Um, generally, they cross through the property and, and they don't poach or steal anything. Um, but they walk literally through my food plot, which uh, can't imagine that's good for for deer. Um, uh, coyotes uh, since there's more uh, raccoons and possums and creatures like that. The coyotes have increased, and they are in the food plot about 24-7 um, and, uh, you know, trying to probably largely get, you know, those coons, possums, and, and bunny rabbits and uh, 
but uh, so that kind of makes it challenging. And then, uh, then there's a lot of shooting, just guns, uh, day and night, constantly shooting all around the place. Um, and uh, probably part of it's going after feral hogs. Um, so, you know, some of that I think they, you know, they do get uh, conditioned to. Um, but, you know, some of that I'm not sure if they, if they do, especially if they're crossing through an area, you know, where they're actually, you know, shooting. So uh, between all of those factors, you know, realized pretty early on how important security was. Um, and it's evident in the fact that, you know, most of the, photos that I get, or many of them, are, are at night. And so, you know, it's really a nighttime herd right now, uh, and herd's a big word, uh, not quite that many deer there. But, uh, um, you know, it's really a nighttime. They come in at night, and uh, we have in the – we created a destination food plot uh, in the very middle, kind of an inside-out uh, plan, and uh, they'll come in at night, eat there, and then leave. And so – you know, we can tell that, uh, you know, they don't feel safe on our property. Um, and that's what we're trying to do is you know, to be able to increase the, uh, you know, the security and, and the cover, uh, maybe have two, three doe families that, you know, live there regularly. Um, and really try to create a kind of oasis in the desert, you know, as a way to put it to you, because they don't really have security right. anywhere else either. And so, you know, if we can give them security, uh, you know, in this little in this little 50 acres um, that we're managing, then uh, hopefully they'll you know they'll come and they'll stay a while, or or at least you know frequent it during the hunting season. So walk us through your setup for the food plot. Why you put it in the center of the property, and uh, tell our listeners what you planted there and what's what's been working for you. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, probably like, uh, you know, some that started out, I, I didn't have a plan in the beginning. Um, I saw a little bitty clearing and thought, oh, it'd be neat. I'll put some throw and grow in there and set up a stand. And, you know, this is habitat management. And, uh, and after, you know, get, you know, reading into it, some realized that, you know, that's, of course, not the way to do it. Uh, not taking into account, you know, access or, uh, where are the deer coming in from, um, you know, scent when you're, you know, walking into a, a stand. Uh, so we ended up setting up, so it's an 80-acre property, but the first 30 acres uh, are largely recreational, uh, have two ponds, uh, trails for trail riding. That's where the cabin is. Uh, so we kind of use the front part for recreational. This back 50 is the deer management area. And, we decided to go with the inside out because um, of all the people. Well, one of the reasons is all the people and activity that is all around the edge of the property. So on the southern end of the property are houses where people are outside all day long and some of the night. Uh, on the west and north side, as I mentioned, it's, uh, you know, a cattle ranch, uh, very active uh, individuals out there, you know, all day long usually working. And thought that we really wanted to try to, you know, foster deer movement into the inside of the property where they would likely feel the most secure. Uh, and so we created kind of an inside-out concept by uh, carving out about a, a two-acre uh, food plot out of the hardwoods. Um, and I did leave in a small island, also left in uh, a bunch of native browse um, after we got done uh, cleaning it out. 
And the first year, um, amended a pH and uh, fertilized it and planted uh, uh, rye as a winter. So rye, chicory, uh, clover, uh, daikon radish, and some brassicas. What kind um, of pH really, are you working with from the beginning? It's, it started at five. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a sandy, sandy loam soil. Um, so it started out at five and, uh, you know, spreaded, um, you know, powdered, powdered lime. And, uh, you know, it picked up pretty quickly and it's, uh, it's in pretty good shape now. It's around 6.5. Um, nice. so it's, it's, uh, yeah, so it's doing, doing pretty, pretty good right now. Uh, so that is right in the middle of the property where, um, and we, we don't bother the deer there, um, other than when we're working, um, but we don't hunt it. Um, or at least we try not to hunt it. Uh, we did make an exception. We saw a large buck in there uh, towards the end of the hunting season, but generally we, we try not to hunt it, and so you know the deer feel comfortable in there. Uh, we've edge-feathered edge around the side. Uh, we need to do more of that. Uh, we also have planted uh, screening around the side. Uh, right now I've been using um, annual screens, um, but we'll probably uh, begin, you know, put in some switch, uh, you know, this spring in addition to the annual, um, especially now with the edge feathering, more light is getting to the edges. Before I was worried the switch wouldn't have enough light. Um, so I only planted switch in areas of the property that I knew would, would get uh, full sun. So we, we kind of started with that destination plot, but, the idea was to draw them in with that destination plot, but then foster their movement throughout the property uh, through travel corridors that would go to kill plots. And so we created what could really best be described as a racetrack. I mean, it's not exactly the shape of an oval, but kind of around that, um, around that, that food plot and more toward the edges of the property and we have kill plots along that racetrack, um, and we're trying to foster that deer movement, you know, to those kill plots. And from there, we can access, by walking on our north and south fence line, we can access our blinds without, you know, leaving any scent that would either disturb, that would disturb the kill plots, even the destination plot. Yeah, I really okay. like uh, the plan that, that you came up with based on, the pictures that you sent over, um, you, you kind of already drew up a, a plan already, at, or maybe this is your exact plan. I think you've been you've been studying hard, Chris. This looks great, bud. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, your access is awesome, which is number one. And then, uh, yeah, I like how you're keeping the deer on the property. They can move different directions, and, and like you said, foster the movement inside the borders, and then you're hunting from the outside in. Um, for the most part, that, that's that's great. Thanks, yeah. And uh, you know, the one thing we noticed too is if we're if we are walking to a blind, um, because we need to screen um, our walking trails more than they are. Um, so if we do occasionally bump a deer, you know, they're going to the inside of the property, um, and so that's you know that's good also because you're not we're not bumping them and they go across the fence and you know get killed by somebody else. No, exactly, and it looks like you have a nice big sanctuary to take care of and, you know, stay out of. We try to tell that to all of our, our land plan clients, you know, 
everything you do can just be thrown out the window if you're going to go strolling through the middle of your property every day or, or whatever. So I'm glad. Uh, looks like you're you're doing great here. I really like your plan so far. Well, thanks. Yeah, um, and I think our you know our goal for you know this year is, is just really encouraging that that movement um, out to the kill plots. Uh, as I said, a lot of times they're coming into that destination plot and and leaving. Uh, there's one doe family that did stick around and, and move around a little bit, but uh, you know we're really hoping to be able to you know encourage that movement. We've used uh, uh, water holes, uh, of course, licking branches of different types. Uh, it's trying to do whatever we can to encourage that movement. And some of the kill plots we're creating, um, actually this, this weekend. And, uh, and I'm going to plant, um, a diverse, you know, cover crop mixture, um, and try to start out the soil with, uh, you know, a number of, of different types of, of crops that, you know, hopefully will, you know, will improve the soil also. Yep. Yep, that is awesome. And, you know, we deal with that sandy soil up here in Michigan, too. So I hear you there on trying to improve that that drainage that happens to all the nutrients and, and keep them in the soil. So uh, one thing I was wondering that we talked about the other day, you were talking about getting a forestry mulcher in there and doing some work with one of those. and And then secondly... How are you screening the edges of your property from your your neighbors, et cetera? So kind of a two part question there in two totally different directions. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, so we've used, uh, of course, I mean, use a chainsaw, but uh, the challenge with chainsaws I mentioned is one: a lot of the trees just aren't going to fall, and of course, uh, you know, you still have the stumps, um, even if you cut them down pretty low. So uh, we've used. We have used we use a forestry mulcher and we've also used an excavator. Uh, for the destination food plot, we hired someone to come in with a giant excavator. Essentially, would pick up you know 60, 70 foot tree, pull it out of the ground completely, and set it in a brush pile, and they would burn it. Um, with the forestry mulcher, uh, it's kind of a small skid steer, and they have a, some kind of blades on the front, and essentially can go up to a tree. Um, and the and generally it seems like they can do something up to about 10 to 12 inches and they hit the blade against the tree and essentially just um, mulch it down all the way down to the ground um, and we found that uh, so they can't get big super big trees uh, including big cedars big oaks uh, but they can get a lot of the littler stuff um, and they both have their own advantages um, one thing I, I like about the mulcher is it doesn't disrupt the soil as much, um, whereas the excavator was was so big that uh, you know it, it it disrupted the soil in a big way, and you know whatever kind of organic organic matter uh, might have been the soil was probably crushed, um, and of course, and then we had to come back over the excavator and flatten everything out. Uh, with the mulcher, it's uh, I guess you say it's a lot more tender. It damage uh, soil nearly as much um, you do have to clean up um, you know all the all the mulch um, that falls in the ground um, and we usually I just use a, usually use a box blade for that um, I've heard some people use a you know a landscape rake um, but it's a great way to kind of you know, they can make a lot of headway um, you know in a day at least on the trees that we have and I think 
you know, most of them 10 to 12 inch range and maybe, uh, you know, 30, 40 feet high, you know, they can, they can take those down pretty well. Wow. Yeah, that sounds efficient. And, and like you said, I like how you're keeping some of the topsoil intact there, whatever, whatever's there versus, you know, uprooting it and, and pushing it off to the side, which can happen when you're clearing land like that. So some pros and cons to each piece of equipment, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's no doubt the excavator was instant gratification um, because, uh, you know, it took a, a two-acre area that was, you know, hardwoods, and next thing was completely opened up. So, uh, I mean, it was neat to, to have that. And uh, But, uh, yeah, I think it just kind of depends on what you want to do. They, they both have their own benefits. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff is – is not just native to, to Texas that we're discussing here. I mean, I find that what you're dealing with and what Brian's dealing with and I'm dealing with and a lot of our listeners um, can all relate to what you're saying here. Um, the, I want to know, I guess, what's different next that you're dealing with compared to what we deal with, you know, whether it's grasses mm-hmm. or, or anything like any sort of habitat, you know, manipulation that, that you're like, all right, that won't work for me down here. Um, and then maybe you can, <laughs> maybe, maybe you can substitute or answer that with something that might be a good substitute. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, it's funny, it's funny you ask that question because, uh, it's something that me and a friend of mine talk about a lot because, um, there certainly are some differences and it really starts with the weather. Um, okay. it can be, it can be 70 degrees in January. Um, the weekend after uh, deer season ended on the first week of January, it was 70 degrees and we were out cutting down trees. Um, our spring starts really in March, April. Uh, soil temps uh, get up to 45 degrees in, in March. Um, and, of course, by uh, end of July and August, it's, it's miserably at 100 degrees plus. Uh, you really can't work in it at all, or at least not for a long period of time. And that heat really stays with you through almost to end October. Um, and so that first month of hunting season, archery opens October 1st. Uh, you know, it's shorts and T-shirt, and you know, it could be 90, 90, 95 degrees outside. Uh, and so that weather impacts a lot. Of course, it impacts, uh, you know, the species. Uh, like we don't have, uh, you know, like box elder and autumn olive or two species that I hear a lot of people talking about, um, you know, in Michigan um, that, um, you know, are challenging species. Um, uh, I think also uh, native grasses. Uh, and, and you'll have to let me know, Jared and Brian, if, if this is true or not. But, uh, you know, I've heard before that, like, uh, some switch or some native grasses, you know, might not stand through the winter or even some annuals. Uh, they might say, you know, Egyptian weed or or kind of pick your annual sorghum Sudan uh, might not stand through the the winter. Uh, well, in Texas, we really don't. Well, where I am at least, we really don't have winters. And so, uh, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but uh, you know, uh, grasses, native grasses will stand all winter without any kind of issue. Uh, uh, big blue stem, little blue stem, which I just love for uh, screening uh, and cover sure. and, uh, and even and even bedding. Uh, of course, switch will stand. The annuals will stand, um, and so you really don't have to. 
I'm sorry, you're not getting that heavy ice like Dallas will get sometimes. Well, I said almost. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, unfortunately, there are occasions where um, big storms come through, as you just mentioned, uh, Dallas. So, my uh, my property went through that as well. Um, but those are very unusual events. I think it has not snowed in um, like five or six years in Dallas, and then we got like an inch. And so the storm this winter was was very unusual. Right. Um, right. You know, generally the win- the winter the winter is 60 degrees, and then a front might come through. Uh, maybe it drops to 30 or 40 for a couple of days. Uh, then it comes back up. Um, and so that gets to uh, you know a subject that. Um, you know, as, as near and dear to, you know, a lot of people's hearts, uh, frost eating, uh, you know, it's really, uh, really difficult if, uh, not impossible to frost feed <laughs> down here. <laughs> if you can imagine, cause yeah. there's no frost, there's no frozen ground, there's no ice. I mean, the, the ground isn't kind of moving, you know, as it thaws out. Uh, that just, that, you know, you'll go out in December and it'll be 65 degrees. So, um, you know, so that you know, that part is uh, you know a little little different as well. So, um, so I think it's really you know the the weather is you know is uh, you know is the primary difference that I could think of. So your water holes that I see on the on the property there, you have any trouble keeping water in those when it gets too hot in the summer, or they stay pretty wet year round? Yeah, they stay pretty wet um, as long as there's uh, rain. Uh, that area gets uh, about 30 to 35 inches of rain um, okay. a year, and they're in runoffs. And so, you know, they fill up relatively quickly. Um, interestingly, uh, I, I did put in a 110-gallon water hole, um, which was uh, incredibly difficult because it's – it's clay after about 12 inches. Um, and it took a lot of people and blood, sweat and tears to get that thing in. And it's been in for three years and I don't think a deer has touched it yet. Um, (laughs) so my neighbor, uh, he has five or six ponds and I have two ponds. And so the one thing I've learned is, okay, I guess water is not uh, anything. Uh, it's not a critical need for him. Because gotcha. uh, yeah, they haven't touched the uh, that water hole. So if if you're not worried about it drying up, they probably don't freeze up either on you. So that's good news. Nope. Yeah, they, they don't freeze. <laughs> so what else do you have that's a little bit different? Any different trees or shrubs that you're dealing with um, that the deer like or, or don't like? Um, I know you said you don't have the autumn olive, which is great. Um, and not like we love that up here, speaking for some <laughs> of us, but what do you, uh, what's their good native browse in your area? Well, you know, some of the natives might, might be native browse, might be similar. Uh, we have ragweed, uh, yeah, okay. pokeweed, uh, croton, um, uh, the doveweed, croton, um, uh, of course, for uh, uh, trying to think of you know some of the other types of native browse we have, um, but yeah, quite. Oh, and uh, uh, 
pars uh, parsley pea, or I'm get I'm slightly getting the name wrong on that, but uh, it's an annual legume that uh, that deer really like, and so uh, so you can definitely we've been able to stir some of those up from the seed bank, um, you know, get some pretty pretty decent growth. Uh, Poke seems to be pretty dominant on my property for some reason, I'm not sure why, but uh, but it all grows pretty quickly. And so, uh, you know, setting it back is important. And uh, we have, as I mentioned, in the destination food plot, there's a section that's just native forbs and native grasses that we kind of left just as an experiment. And uh, it just, it grew super quick. And so we'll need to burn that and, you know, get it uh, back down to ground level to kind of, you know, start over again. Oh, the name I remember is Partridge Pea. <laughs> Almost had it. Gotcha. Gotcha. And is it getting too big to where they're not browsing out anymore because it's too much of a, a woody stem in some of that? Or, or what do you mean too big? Yeah, exactly. A woody stem, uh, gotcha. you know, too tall and a woody stem and uh, uh, including oh, goldenrod too is in there. Um, now the the, uh, the raccoons and the possums and the skunks, they love it. Uh, the rabbits, um, they you know, they love being in there. Um, of course, they also love the the brush piles, but uh, they they won't be too happy when we burn it. But uh, <laughs> we'll try to try, we'll try to get them out of there first, and then and then bring it back down to ground level. Gotcha. Yeah, they also like uh, chewing up the the bottoms of your pine trees or fruit trees or any other nice tree you're trying to grow too. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell us about how you've had to modify or adjust your habitat and hunting plans based on what you're observing, whether it's deer movement behavior. Um, I know you have hogs. We haven't talked about those yet. I guess let's kind of hear about how you've had to juke and jive to keep this thing going um, and what you've learned from that. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Jared, I, uh, uh, Definitely, we've learned a lot along the way, and you know, we started out with the destination plot, um, and then uh, created a, a couple travel corridors uh, going into it with uh, waterhole and uh, licking branches, with the idea of hunting the travel corridor, not the destination food plot. Uh, it turned out they didn't use it. They didn't use the travel corridors. They didn't use the water. And they don't use the licking branches. Um, and so we had to adjust our plan a little bit. Um, and another part of it was we didn't have a great sense of deer movement on the property. Uh, we didn't have a lot of cell cameras up, uh, you know, three or four years ago. And, you know, we bumped some deer, but didn't really understand how are deer getting on the property? Uh, are they staying on the property, et cetera? Uh, and so, you know, after kind of, putting up a um, bunch of uh, cell cameras and, you know, realizing they're not using the travel corridor, you started to learn what they are using and where they are coming from uh, and how they're, you know, and how they're getting there. And so the first, one thing we did was we kind of adjusted our screening. We, we created, uh, you know, essentially tornado zones, um, and we're still creating them. It's a process. Uh, but along the, uh, the southern fence line, uh, and then to some degree along the northern uh, and northwest uh, fence lines. 
uh, with a full understanding that, you know, deer aren't going to come through it, but hopefully the trespassers won't either. Uh, maybe it'll cut down on noise because uh, the houses, for example, they're, uh, you know, playing music, shooting guns, uh, et cetera. So hoping it would bring down the, the decibel level a little bit, make the deer feel more secure. And we were starting to wrap that screen over the west side until we realized that that's actually where a lot of the deer are coming from is uh, crossing through this corridor on the on the neighbor's property. And so we, you know, we stopped that. We, did, we uh, didn't do a tornado zone over there. Uh, and tried to make it very inviting for them to be able to come in quickly and then find a good side cover, you know, once they, they got on the property. And so once we kind of understood that deer movement, you know, that, that helped. Um, and then the other part with the travel corridor and the water hole, that was going to be the, that was the very first blind that we had out there thinking this will be great. You know, they'll, you know, just like the videos, they're going to come in and they're going to hit the licking branch. Uh, they're going to hit the water hole and then we can, you know, we can shoot him with a bow. Um, of course, no, like as I mentioned, no, no deer ever showed up uh, on camera or hunting. And so that's when we came up with kind of the racetrack uh, concept um, where, uh, you know, we're not going to actually hunt them going from that destination food plot kind of to the outer edge. We're going to try to draw them to the edges and to that racetrack, to those kill plots, and, and try to hit them there. Um, and that also gave us, um, you know, having the racetrack option also gave us more uh, space to put up blinds, too. So, you know, we can uh, do three or four blinds, you know, on, on, on each side, on the north and south side. Um, so it's kind of an example. And you know, I think it's, uh, you know, so one thing that, you know, we certainly learned is it's important uh, to have a plan that, you know, you're okay changing over time. You know, nothing is completely set in stone um i mean other than you know cutting down a forest and saying oh shoot i shouldn't have done that i wish those trees would be back uh there's not a lot you can't fix um and so you know and you know and in some cases if you really understand your land already and deer maybe the first time around you're gonna the plan's gonna you know hit it out of the park but uh you know i've really found it you know it's just good to kind of and i've actually liked going kind of slow because, you know, it's enabled me to, to adjust a little bit. Um, you know, we didn't have the money to just immediately clear, you know, X number of acres. Um, logging is not an option uh, there, uh, you know, and I, I can explain, explain why it's interested. So, you know, we kind of did it piecemeal uh, and didn't expect huge results next year, but, uh, but that also allowed us to kind of tinker and work with different areas um, and kind of, you know, see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, this is a marathon, you know, not a not a sprint, as our friend Phil likes to say. And, and that's kind of why we started these, these land plans we offer. Um, and we want to make sure that you don't get five years down the road, ten years down the road, and go, oh, man, I cut that forest down, or I did this, or I did that. Um, a lot of it you can you can fix and change, uh, including the the plan. If there's something that isn't always exactly where you need it, then you can always move that or, or shift a little bit. Um, but no, it's definitely important to have a, a plan and goals right up front. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's uh, you know there's things on my property that I wish I would have done differently, you know, and and I'm 
slowly growing some of that cover back and, and learning. I've talked about that before on the show. But And then observation. You hit observation there really well with your your cell cameras. I think you mentioned you were using the CardiLink system. You, so you have cameras all over, as do I. Uh, you learn a lot by just watching cameras all year. Um, I can't stress that enough. I put, I don't know, six cameras on my 15 acres last fall. Uh, and, and let them ride and just learned a ton. I hunted stands I've never hunted before. So I appreciate you bringing up that point. Observation and, and having a plan and uh, just some goals in mind are, are three key things there for anybody who, you know, might be just getting into this. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, yeah, you mentioned goals. Um, I mean, I think having realistic goals is so important. And, you know, I might be an outlier in the habitat management world in the sense that, uh, you know, my goals are really a, a holistic wildlife plan. Uh, you know, it includes pollinators, uh, you know, rabbits, squirrels. We've created a lot of, uh, brush piles for rabbits, um, uh, using, uh, and putting the drainage pipe under brush piles. Um, and then for deer, this is the part that's a little unique is, uh, I'm not necessarily trying to attract, uh, you know, 130s or Boone and Crockett, although, not saying it wouldn't be nice, but, uh, you know, simply having a couple doe families, three or four doe families, um, and, you know, an occasional illegal shooter. Uh, illegal shooter in my county, the horns have to be out past the ears. Um, so the deer pressure in the ecological region I'm in is, is really severe. Uh, the average buck that's killed is two years old. Um, the font, most fawns don't survive. The fawn crop is about 30%. Um, you know, and so it's, uh, you know, it's, I have to have that realistic expectation that, you know, I'm not trying to attract a, a boon and crockett deer, but what I am trying to do is, you know, be able to harvest deer to, you know, have in the freezer and bring friends out, especially love bringing friends out that haven't hunted much. I mean, I get so much, uh, you know, joy out of, uh, out of that, uh, you know, bringing people out that have, have never hunted, um, you know, and, get, and trying to get them into a deer. So, you know, yeah. if I ever got the property to a point where a couple of those could be hunting and I get them into a deer, like, you know, a crossbow or whatever the case might be, uh, you know, that's a, you know, I consider that a success. And, uh, and you know, and then I would Amen. definitely build on it from there and that build on it from there. You know, if, uh, if it gets to that point and everything's looking good, then, you know, let's say I've moved from the third to, like, the sixth in, inning of the nine-inning game, and, you know, maybe we try to do some things to, you know, bring in a, a you know, bigger buck. But uh, I get a lot of joy off uh, just bringing people out there that, that haven't haven't hunted before. Yeah, that's outstanding. And, and touching along the lines of expectations, Chris, we have a lot of listeners in the south, and uh, – just by way of sheer numbers, we, we do a lot of talking about habitat management for the north. What do you think maybe some expectations or maybe just some tips for uh, southern uh, properties, Texas, Louisiana, any, anything similar to yours that maybe we miss on our show a lot because we're so busy talking about the north? Is there anything you could uh, pass along to some of our southern listeners that we might not touch on enough? Um, yeah, maybe I, I will say, I think y- y'all cover a lot of the, you know, a lot of the habitat, habitat management principles, um, you know, in terms of maybe Eastern Texas, Louisiana, 
when you're looking at those hardwoods, uh, you know, a lot of it is getting rid of them, uh, developing that early successional uh, growth, uh, planting, uh, you know, pl- planting switchgrass. Um, in the south, Alamo switchgrass is, uh, can be very successful. Uh, planting, uh, you know, big blue, little blue uh, as, a, as a screen or as an edge feather or just to break up some, you know, some sight lines um, and, you know, create bedding. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in the area that I'm in, uh, and this is probably true for a lot of Texas, uh, nutrition is is really lacking and so um you know in the midwest it's like okay that you know that that cornfield um you know they plowed it so now the deer are going to kind of move i mean they don't have deer in you know texas don't have that option uh and and probably uh you know some parts of the south there there aren't large soybean fields or or cornfields and so um and so any nutrition that you offer uh is going to be super important to them um and of course you know if you uh you know, if you can add, uh, you know, protein, you know, pellets into the mix, um, you know, that has been proven to, you know, to, to help them as well. So, you know, I think, uh, Christian, you know, as I think of the different, you know, ecological regions in Texas, uh, different areas that I've hunted, um, and if you take South Texas, for example, or Brian, you mentioned, uh, you know, around, around San Antonio, um, there's just not, there's not a lot for deer to eat. Uh, and so if you're able to, you know, generate uh, those na- get those native forbs uh, growing, uh, plant you know successful uh, you know food plots, um, you know with a of course a diverse mix of you know of nutrients. Um, yeah, I think that can be uh, that can be really really successful. Um, and some of the species, you know of uh, you know we might use uh, cereal rye, but it's you know a different one type of cereal rye works better in the south than perhaps. In the north, like Elbin rye is very common. Um, Alice clover, uh, for a clover, uh, is used a lot. Um, as I mentioned, the, the Alamo switch. Um, so some of the species that, you know, a, a local co-op, uh, you know, would be able to, um, you know, relay to you, uh, probably some of the differences as well. Um, in some parts of Texas, are, it's very rocky too. That's another thing that, uh, you know, they deal with is, you know, trying to up the topsoil organic matter, you know, over, uh, you know, over rocks. Um, but I think in general, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the principles are probably the, the same. Well, I think you named a bunch of great, you know, tips there in terms of seed choice and some, some needs, um, for different areas. So great question, Brian. Um, and I, I guess it kind of, falls into another subject I wanted to hit, um, the hogs. I mean, we don't deal with those up here, uh, at least I haven't, and I know that you have to sometimes play a play a game, if you will, with them um, based on our, our earlier conversation. I guess, you know, there, there might be some hog advice you could shed to us and tell us about how you – manage them and the impact they have on your on your hunting property and your, your deer, um, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, you know, you bet. Uh, with hogs, I, I probably best describe it as a, a love-hate relationship, probably leaning more towards the hate side than the love side. 
um, they are, uh, they can be a real nuisance. Um, have a lot of, and, and everyone in Texas and in the South is faced with, uh, incredibly invasive animal, uh, breeds three times a year. I believe it has eight to ten, uh, piglets. Um, in my experience, almost all of them live. I mean, I see them on camera as I watch them grow up. Um, all of them live and they can eat anything. I mean, they can eat, uh, they'll eat themselves. I mean, if you shoot one, they'll eat, they'll eat themselves. They'll eat berries. They'll eat corn. Uh, there's nothing they won't eat. Uh, they'll eat fawns. Um, and, uh, so they are super successful, uh, as an invasive because they can survive, you know, eating anything in any, in any weather. Um, and they also are, uh, are surprisingly, uh, smart in some ways, um, their eyesight isn't great, but, uh, you know, they, they quickly learn to adapt to, you know, any patterns that, you know, anything you're doing on, on the land um, to try to, you know, try to avoid you. Uh, the challenges with hogs are, are numerous. Um, they will destroy a food plot. Um, so kind of in a, I was talking to a gentleman today about uh, I'm going to plant uh, for the first time, plant uh, soybeans. In that destination food plot because my soil is in a good place now. And we're talking about forage soybeans and how, uh, you know, even with forage, it can be difficult for them to grow because, you know, deer will hit them so quickly. Uh, and of course, a lot of people put up electric fences and, you know, we have those discussions. And, uh, you know, for, for me, it's, a, it's the hogs. I mean, the hogs will come in and they'll absolutely destroy a food plot because they root and they'll root all the seeds out and they'll root the plants out. Um, they also, uh, if you're putting out any bait, which uh, I did put out some protein feed, um, they will eat all that. You won't have, um, you know, any of that left. Um, and they do scare the deer, in my experience at least. Um, they don't scare deer off property to never come back. Um, but deer, generally speaking, in my experience, and it's going to be different for different people that you know, have observed um, the two together, but they don't like being in the same space. Uh, so deer will leave. Like if there's a, if there's a deer at a feeder, uh, and a hog comes up, the deer will leave. Uh, hog leaves, the deer may or may not come back. And so what that means is like in my destination food plot, anytime the hogs are in there, there will not be a deer in there. Um, and then the same in the kill plots or in the few, uh, you know, protein feeders, um, that we have out. Um, and so what a lot of people do and what I did, this is, you know, one of the things that did not work was uh, created a, a huge pen around one of the uh, the protein feeders uh, to try to prevent uh, pigs from getting in there. And uh, and it did work. Uh, the pigs, you know, didn't go in there, but unfortunately the deer didn't either. And so that uh, didn't work well. And typically deer, uh, in Texas at least, they will jump a pen, but uh, for some reason they, they just were not on my property. Uh, and so I took the uh, pen away. Uh, a hog came up and stuck his nose in my gravity feeder and ate, you know, 100 pounds of protein feed. Um, oh, that's wow. the downside. Uh, on the plus side, they are fun to hunt. Um, and they're really good to eat. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, buddy. <laughs> and, and, I took, and for, for first time hunters, uh, in, in my experience, they really enjoy hunting hogs because they don't feel there's no uh, guilt associated with it because this is an invasive species in Texas. 
You can hunt them at night. You can hunt them from helicopters. You can hunt them with any weapon you want. Um, they recently passed a law that you don't even need a hunting license. I mean, literally, there's any way to get rid of them because they're such a nuisance. So uh, first-time hunters, you know, they really enjoy that. And uh, you can get up and close to them, uh, you know, and um, and they, they, they are pretty good on smoker. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're not kidding. Brian and I have both um, whacked a few hogs down in Florida. And so if there's any listeners that have a helicopter and want to pick us up and head down to Chris's place, uh, <laughs> Brian will pay for the fuel and I'll buy the bush lights. <laughs> Hell, yeah. No, that's – that's that, I, I agree with that. That's a good point on, on getting them started um, and not having the guilt associated with it. Um, funny story, I shot mine – with a bow in Florida with a guy that Brian told me to go to. Brian's been there a bunch of times. And uh, it was great. And I, we, we get on this golf cart to go out into his, his back 40 or whatever, and my wife's with me. We're on our anniversary trip. And uh, so the first thing we do is go to the airport or get there, get the bow, go to the hog place. Haven't even got to the, the condo yet. And she's sitting on the back of this golf cart in the back seat jacked up golf cart and me and the me and the guy sneak off into the woods towards his feet or putting a stock on with a bow and i i whack this big hog by 200 pounds and that sucker runs right by my wife on the golf cart while she's sitting there on her phone <laughs> arrow arrow hanging out literally she goes oh i guess you got one you know and, and she, you know sure as hell that the guy He's more of a, a gun guy. He's like, oh, no, bad shot, bad shot. I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I thought it was great. Anyways, it was laying there, you know, croaked another 80 yards or whatever. But uh, it's it's fun stuff, man. You're not kidding. That's just fun stuff. And then I took the thing home. I flew it home, had it on the smoker probably every other week for all summer long. It was excellent. Yeah, man, that's, that's a good story, Jared. Uh, and I'll tell you, there's – a lot of a lot of uh, stories like that, you know, a first-time hunter, and they uh, just can't quit talking about it. Uh, just a, a lot of fun. We uh, we'll often we'll shoot them with the bow too. Um, we'll use uh, night lights, um, you know, big solar lights, and uh, the hogs get used to those lights, and they'll come in and and trigger the light, and uh, and then if you get them, they they do have a, a big plate of armor on on their side. Um, and I've certainly had many runoffs, uh, unfortunately, with uh, an arrow in them. And uh, so you, you, you do have to kind of aim in the right place. But uh, they yeah. will they will fill your smoker for a long time, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Brian, how many you shot down there in Florida? Oh, probably half a dozen there, some in South Carolina, a bunch in Texas. <laughs> the old whack master. Um, I love it. Chris, you're probably a little too far north for the Havilinas, right? Yeah, they're more uh, west and south. Um, you know, certainly have uh, hunted them before, and uh, they definitely taste uh, a lot different than a feral oh, yeah. yeah, they look <laughs> like uh, pigs, but they're not pigs. You know, they're peccaries, right? Like, right, yep. Yeah, they're, they're peccaries. peccaries and, uh, yep, and they taste uh, – they are entertaining to watch. Um, they make a they make a real uh, uh, trying to climb up the side of a hill. They're they're pretty entertaining to see them try to make it up there. But 
not quite as tasty. Yeah, I've got a nice European mount sitting right here that I did myself, and they've got some pretty impressive teeth on them once you get all the skin and everything else off of them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you have to be uh, a lot more concerned about a javelina than a uh, you know, feral hog won't really uh, come after you. Uh, unless it's, you know, really cornered by, you know, a dog or something. But, uh, yeah, Halloween is a, a good pack of them might run you up a tree. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Chris, I have um, one more question here on the on the Texas recommendations or or tips that, that we kind of got into here. This is, this is great stuff. Um, there's one more thing that we talked about the other day is a, a program you can get into for some tax exemption, I believe it was, or maybe some cost share um, that you were telling me about that I was like, well, that, we need to cover that because other people in Texas for the South might be able to take advantage of something like this. Um, can you expound on that a little bit for me? Yeah, sure. Um, so Texas and, uh, and possibly other states have a program where, uh, you can use uh, wildlife management uh, as a tax exemption, uh, similar that you would for an ag exemption or a, a timber exemption. Uh, it's a program that the state has in order to try to uh, encourage people to return uh, their land back to uh, back to uh, native, you know, prairie or you know, in the case where I am, you know, post oak savanna, and then try to encourage uh, you know wildlife. Um, and kind of the way it works is uh, you first have to enter into a tax exemption uh, from some other uh, category, whether it's uh, cattle, uh, bees, uh, could be um, timber, uh, in order for them to generate kind of a, a productivity value, to have a sense of, you know, how much the land is worth. As they don't really have a calculation for wildlife um, but then after you do that for a certain period of time, you can apply for a wildlife exemption. Um, and a biologist will visit the land, um, offer advice, and then you fill out, every year you fill out some paperwork that shows the different things that you're, you're doing on the land to try to promote, um, you know, different species, whether um, it's pollinators, white-tailed deer, uh, turkey, et cetera. Um, and then your your taxes will be will be exempt, um, you know, once you once you do that. So, you know, it's a great win-win I think for landowners uh, and the state uh, because Texas Parks and Wildlife has you know a number of programs and initiatives uh, that seek to restore, you know, as do many states um, that seek to restore wildlife around the state, including like turkeys in East Texas or you know or black bear. Um, uh, you know, in Big Bend and north of the Big Bend area. Uh, and so this encourages landowners because Texas, I think, is, by the percentage rights, like 90% private land. That was very little public wow. land. And so they know they need to work with landowners, um, you know, in order to promote wildlife um, and try to, uh, you know, try to return some of, of the land back to its native uh, state. And so um, this is one of the programs that they, they offer to do that. That's awesome. And um, are you are you in you're in that you got into that right? Yes, I did. 
Okay, cool. That's some great advice. I'm I'm not positive Michigan has that. I don't think we do. We're a lot of forestry, um, ag for sure, but I haven't heard of that. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. But that's that's pretty cool stuff. So if you're if you're down in in Chris's neck of the woods, it'd be something to look into for sure. So the last thing I had, uh, you're a listener of the podcast. You already know what's coming. So this should be no surprise, no surprise to you. I want to know your favorite tree, Chris. Yeah. Uh, tell me all about so it. Go- so I'm in the post oak savanna, Jared. So got to go post oak. Nice. Um, I love I love a beautiful post oak. Uh, some that are on my property, uh, you know, probably 50 plus years old, um, and each seems to have unique character to it. The way that they grow. You know, not, not one of them is the same if they haven't been trimmed anyway, if they're out in the wild. Really? Um, yeah, I have one on the property. Well, actually, well, it was two. They grew together, and they created um, kind of a – it's one oak, but it's it grew together, and there's kind of this bridge in between them, and uh, it's just really neat. Uh, so I'm going to have to go post oak. Wow, that sounds crazy. They grew together. Yeah, no, that's – um. You know, it looks like it's part of the the white oak family. I'm sure I can picture kind of what it looks like. So that's that's a great choice. Um, curious, second favorite. Oh, second favorite. Oh yeah, there's the curveball. <laughs> yeah, that is a curveball. Um, gee, you know, interestingly, I mean, in terms of deer habitat. Um, sure. I think this is yeah, that's a curveball. I'm gonna go native. I'm gonna go with something native versus something I'd plant. Sure. Um, we, so winged elm, certainly not top of the list for most people, uh, but they make great mineral stumps. Um, oh, good idea. So cut them, cut them about four inches up, and in, uh, during the summer, uh, and deer just deer will hammer them. Uh, so for the mineral stump purpose, I think I'll go, I think I'll go wing down. Chris, another great tip. Another great tip for, for your region of the world. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of different regions it's going to cover. So I, uh, that's all I had. Anything else from you gentlemen? No, I just appreciate Chris taking the time to come on and it's always great to talk to somebody from the lower part of the country that can shed some light on some things we might miss a lot of times. So thanks so much, Chris. I appreciate it. Oh, you bet. My pleasure, guys. Uh, Happy to be on. Yeah, Chris, thank you very much. Uh, I learned a few things here, which I seem to do every episode, probably why I love this podcast so much. And and we're going to keep this this trend going, guys. Um, Talk to Chris in Texas. We're going to keep branching out as well as, you know, stay, stay close to our main focus and uh, keep you listeners learning. So, Chris, thanks so much, and thanks so much for the, the idea to get some ceramic coffee cups made. I'm sending you one, buddy. So um, <laughs> that, that, that was your idea, man. You're like, I want a coffee cup. I'm like, you know what? Why the hell not? That's a great <laughs> idea. So, you know, shoot me your info. I'll get one in the mail for you. And, and for anybody who's not aware yet, I have a box of like 30 of them. <laughs> so they're for, they're on the website if anybody wants one. But, Chris, 
again, thank you so much for your time tonight, bud, and um, I look forward to keeping in touch with you, you know, over the season's coming. So thanks again. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. Thank you.